Okay, good. This is one of my most, one of my favorite classes to teach. Um, I love this this topic of the scriptures and to try to make it understandable to everyone because they certainly can get confusing. But uh, so let's open our uh, our session with a prayer, and then Sarah is going to sing. And I always look forward to hearing Sarah sing. So, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us the guidance of your Holy Scripture to be a foundation stone for our faith, to help us find you, for it does tell the story of man's search for you and your reaching out to mankind. Help us, dear Lord, to always find you in the Holy Scriptures. And let us pray together as our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This song is one of my favorites from my childhood. I used to sing it with my dad. It's called Thy Word, and it's by Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. can't help clapping for Sarah. God bless you. Oh, I feel like I'm far enough away. I don't need that. All right. I think I entitled this talk, Decoding the Bible. And I like that, that, um, that title because really in a very real sense, the, the Bible is a code. It's, um, it has a specific message and somehow we can always get caught up in peripheral stuff that keeps us from finding that message that the scripture has for us. So we're going to take a look at decoding the Bible and finding out exactly the message that the Bible has for us. 
So I'm going to open with the question, what is the Bible? What? It's the Word of God. What else do we think of as the Bible? Pardon? Direction? It's a lot of things. It gets misunderstood sometimes. People treat, sometimes treat the Bible as a science textbook. Or they treat it as a, um, they treat it as, as a theology book, to, uh, you know, a book about theology, which it really isn't. Sometimes they think it's some kind of secret code for the future. And actually, the truth is the Bible is not a book at all. It's really a lot of books, right? It's, it's books, it's letters, it's, it's, it's all kinds, of, it's, it's songs, it's a lot of different forms of literature. It's more like a library than a book. And it has, like a library, it's got lots of different sections, different types of literature, and they all come into this collection of the Bible. It was written in uh, several different languages. It was written over a period of, um, oh, goodness gracious, about a thousand years. So it's got a lot of different elements that come together with it. And that's one of the reasons it becomes difficult for us to understand it, because we see a book and we want to read it like a book from one cover to the next. And we suddenly discover that it's, it's, we begin to lose ourselves in it very quickly as it passes from one type of literature to another. Um, so we think of it, it's better to think of it as a library, and you'll notice that there are two Testaments. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Actually, in some Bibles, they're referred to as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which actually I, I like better, because the Old Covenant or the Old Testament this is the covenant about the family of Israel. And then the new covenant is the story of the family or of God. And there's, there's a tremendous difference between the two. In the, in the old covenant or the Old Testament, it's all about God's relationship with Israel. Yet with the coming of the Messiah the, and the opening of uh, faith to all, all nations, or the restoration of faith to all nations, it becomes um, something very different. It's the kingdom of God. It's the family of God. And a few basic things about the Bible. There are, um, you know, there are 46 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. But in Jesus' day, it was very different. There was a whole different Bible. You know, you know Jesus had a different Bible than we did, which is kind of interesting. Um, the Bible used in the time of Jesus was called the Septuagint, which is a Greek word for 70. So like I said, we have 48 books or 46 books in our Old Testament, but he had 70 books in what we considered his Old Testament. And so sometimes you'll see in scripture, you'll, um, you'll be reading the New Testament and you'll see this line, as it is written in scripture and it gives this quote, and you think, where is that? Well, it's not necessarily in the books that we have of the Bible. Some of them are in books that, uh, you know, were part of that Septuagint that we don't have. And then, of course, there's the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have many, many more books beyond those of the Septuagint. Because there was no real code as to what books belonged in the Bible. In fact, the list, the table of contents for the Bible was not, de was not determined until the Council of Trent, which unfortunately occurred after the Reformation. So the Protestants have a different set of books than the Catholics do. So even today, you could say there's still not a grand consensus as to what books go in the Bible, which makes things interesting. But that's not really that big of a deal because we're very, you know, as we will talk on, the scripture is that story of God's relationship with man. And whether you limit yourself to the 66 books of the Protestant Bible or the, what do we got, 75 books of the, of the Catholic Bible? 73, thank you very much, 73 books of the Catholic Bible.
I haven't been a Catholic long enough to memorize how many books we have. <laughs> I learned all this as a Baptist. It doesn't really matter because the function of the story is really God's relationship with man. Man's search for God and God's revealing himself to mankind. In the document of the Second Vatican Council, De Verbum, which means the word of God, right? says that in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven meets his children. In the scriptures, we meet God. He meets his children with great love and speaks with them. So the Bible gives us this history of this relationship with God. And just like a relationship, any relationship, it grows over time. It develops. You know, perhaps, you know, you think in terms of, uh, of a boy and a girl and a boy knew a girl because, you know, she lived across town, but then they started going to the same school and then they started to get to know each other better. And then they started dating and they went off to college and they came back together and, you know, and eventually they, they date and they get married. And so the, it's, and that's the kind of a relationship that we see between God and his people, sometimes close to God, sometimes far from God, learning something from God, you know, needing to relearn it again. And it's a relationship that is developing between God and man that we read in the scriptures. We talk about the scriptures being inspired. In fact, St. Paul writes, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for, for doctrine and for teaching and for correction. But what, is, but what the word inspired literally means is the scriptures contain the breath of God. And so when we read the scriptures, if we read the scriptures properly, it is like God is breathing himself into us. Now, I could, you know, we can make a mistake and read the Bible too academically. But if we read this Bible, the scriptures devotionally, then we begin to experience that breath of God as God breathes himself into us. Now, a big debate today, should the Bible be taken literally? And some people think that it's more spiritual to take the Bible literally, word for word. I was raised in that tradition where the Bible is word for word, absolutely true. All, has to be, all should be taken literally. But this runs us into problems. But the other problem, if you don't take the Bible literally, is making that choice between which parts do you take literally and which parts do you not. How do you decide? Oh, God is literally telling us to do this, and well, this is, this is a symbol, or this is, so, this is something else. How do you decide which? Now, if you take the Bible literally, you run into a few problems. Um, like, is God in favor of slavery? God gives rules for slavery in the Old Testament. And there are people who use that, you know, God's instructions on slavery to say, Slavery is not a sin. God didn't say it was a sin. In fact, God gave us rules about how to handle slavery. Does God, is God in favor of slavery? Does God demand genocide? He told Joshua to go into the land and to kill every man, woman, child, cow, sheep, pet, you know, kill them all. Is that God? Is God, is God in favor of genocide? Does God get angry? A lot of places in the Old Testament talks about God being his wrath. He's getting angry with us. Does God change his mind? There are places in the scripture where it says God repented. Does God repent? Does God hate people? There are passages in scripture where it says, Jacob I love and Esau I hated. Does God hate people? So if you want to take the Bible literally word for word, you're going to run into problems. But if you don't take it literally word for word, you run into the question, what's literal and what's not? So the whole purpose of tonight's talk is to give you four keys, 
that will help you to unlock the Bible, help you to understand the scriptures, that I think will help it to make sense to us. And that's an, and that's an important thing. So the first thing, and this, is, this came straight, well, I'll give you the four keys first. The first, the first key is understand the context and the literary, literary form. When you're reading the Bible, what is the context and what is the literary form that we're reading? The second key, understand that the entire Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, generation to revolution, the Bible is all about Jesus. It's key number three. We must understand all of Scripture in the light of the life and teaching ministry of Jesus. We have to receive Jesus as the, as the lens through which we see and understand the rest of the Bible. And for the Christian tradition doesn't end at the word amen, which is the last word of the book of Revelation, the last word of the Bible. The Christian tradition continues. God doesn't stop speaking to his church just because we ran into the, the index of the Bible. God didn't stop speaking. And so we apply the traditions of the church. We, we talked about the apostolic fathers, the church fathers, the the magisterium, to continue hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit as God speaks to the church. So those are the four keys. Let's talk about the first key, literary forms. Different literary forms use different rules of literature. Take, for example, a newspaper. So if you, see a, if you see a headline on a newspaper and it says, England destroys Germany, what does that mean? Actually, what it means depends upon what page that headline happens to be on. If that headline happens to be on the front page, you think, oh, we're still, we've gone back to war. If that headline appears on the sports page, you think, oh, it's the World Cup. So the exact same words within a different literary context means something entirely different. The Second Vatican Council, uh, again, in the De Verbum, Word of God, says that truth is proposed and expressed in a variety of ways, depending on part of its history, poetry, prophecy, all these different types of literature that we experience in the Bible. To begin with, because first and partially because there are lots of different books, right? It's a library, it's not a single book. But even within a single book, there are often different types of literature that are being shown to us. So the, so the first question is always the context and the literary form. Some different types of literary uh, literature that we find in the Bible is history. And history, you would think that history could be taken lit uh, literally, but that's not always true because history always comes from a perspective, right? And sometimes, you know, as information gets passed from one person to another, especially when we're talking, you know, I know talking history that's not recorded for several hundred years after after the event and there are no written records. So history is one of the things, but that's always told from perspective. Legend, there are legends in the Bible, just like there are legends in our everyday life. And legend is kind of like history. It usually revolves around a historical character, but sometimes things get embellished, but there's always a purpose. There's, there's, there's something that is trying to be stated in that legend. Who's the, who's the railroad man with the hammer? John Henry? John Henry had a hammer? All right, that's a legend. There probably was a guy named John Henry. He probably worked on a railroad, and he probably was a really strong man. But he gets embellished to the point that he becomes a symbol. 
of those who slaved relentlessly building the railroad and were unsung. Or un, you know, hundreds of them died along the way, were just buried alongside the tracks. He becomes a symbol of people that we ne will never hear of. And that's, that's called a legend. And there are legends in the scriptures. Um, there's law. You know, laws are directives. But as we know very well in this country, laws are subject to interpretation. So you have to have someone interpreting the laws to know how to use it. I tell you, if you ever want to, if you ever want to go crazy, read the Talmud, which is the series of interpretations of Jewish rabbis on the law. It's really pretty fascinating because you'll have a verse of scripture and 10 or 12 different rabbis explaining very, very different interpretations of what that law means and how to abide by that law. That's why when you read this, the New Testament and you hear them talk about Jesus teaches with authority, they're shocked. Here's a rabbi who teaches with authority because other rabbis, they would teach, well, this rabbi says that, this rabbi says that, and, you know, and so it's, it's a memorization of all these different opinions. So you have a teacher who stands up and gives you 12 different opinions. But Jesus spoke with authority. He said the way it really was. So there's law, there's poetry. Of course, we have the Psalm and we have many other poems throughout the scriptures, even in the New Testament. We have bits and pieces of, of songs that the ancient church used to sing inside the New Testament. Poetry, there's wisdom literature, which is kind of like Aesop's fables, but without the story. You know, if you're ever in Aesop's stables, you read this little cute little story and it says, and the moral of the story is, and it tells you the moral. Well, if you read the wisdom literature, it's like it skipped the story and just gives you the moral. But the wisdom literature is fabulous, beautiful stuff. You also have moral stories, stories that are designed to teach a lesson, perhaps make a theological point, perhaps make a moral point, but there are moral stories. In that sense, they're kind of like Aesop's fables, except they don't ever explain at the end and say, the moral of the story is, you have to figure that out by your, for yourself. There are personal letters. There are open letters. A lot of the New Testament are open letters, letters written to a church, or letters written just to all Christians, but then they're all personal letters, letters written to individuals that we have in Scripture. There's political discourse, and of course that's very motivational and directive. And then we have a very unique type of literature called the gospel. And the gospel is a separate type of literature all by itself. We tend to think of the gospels as biography, but they're really not. They're something entirely different. A gospel is a collection of teachings and experiences of the life of Jesus arranged in such a way to help people learn how to believe, learn, have faith. It's all designed to help us have faith. So it's not really designed to give us a biography of Jesus. That's why when you read through the four Gospels and you see similar stories, but they're, they're placed in different historical context or in different locations. It's because the author is not trying to give you a biography of what happened. He's taking the collection of the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and presenting them in a fashion that he hopes will help you come to faith. So all of these different types of literature in the scriptures, now here's the test. What is the Garden of Eden story? Is it history? Is it legend? Or is it a moral story? <laughs> you can read it all three ways. And, you know, and scholars are going to disagree as to, how, as to where it fits. But you can see that, okay, when you, especially we're dealing with those first 12 chapters of Genesis that are so deep in prehistory, but like the, the, the Ark of Noah, Noah's Ark story, history, legend, moral story, all, all three. The Exodus from Egypt. The miracles of Jesus. Why, I tell you, when I was, 
when I was in, in uh, you know, doing some of my theological studies, there was a Protestant common, uh, Bible scholar and common, wrote commentaries by the name of Barclay. And he wanted to disprove that all the, none of the miracles of Jesus ever happened. And he had this, some, a wild imagination as to why there were no miracles. And one of them was like in the feeding of 5,000. He said they all brought bag lunches and they kept them hidden until one boy had the, the courage to offer up his lunch and then everybody brought their lunches out, right? All right, you know, and that story would almost make sense except for the very next thing happened is Jesus goes across the lake to the other side and they all run around the shore of the lake to, to, to get to him. I don't think they would have done that if it was all about a bag lunch. And then there's the walking on the water. That's a great one. He, he insisted that there were giant lily pads in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus knew where they were. So people can do all kinds of things to try to discount parts of the Bible. Again, you have that question. What do we take literally and what do we don't? What do we not? So but when you're making that decision, take it literally or not, ask yourself, what type of literature is this? What's the context of this? If we're dealing with the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, deal with early, early uh, prehistory, we have to realize that these events were not written down for tens of thousands of years after they, were, after they occurred. So the historical context in them is very slight. Mostly they are trying to communicate to us the very beginnings of man and God reaching out to each other. And it's interesting because what you start with is Adam and Eve who walk with God, who know God. So early man had this close relationship with God, but it drifted until the point that it got so bad that, you know, in the scriptures that God had to destroy everybody except Noah and his family. When you see things like this, I, I want you to understand that there is a context in which this is written. Because in the scriptures, actually up until the time of Jesus, the ancients were confused that if something good happened to you, God was, that's because God was being nice to you. God was blessing you. You must be a good person. God is taking care of you. And if something bad happens to you, that's because you were an evil person and God was doing something bad to you. God was punishing you because you did something bad. We'll get to this later, but Jesus reverses that. He says, don't be silly. We're all the same. We're all the same. None of us really are, the, are any better or worse than anybody else. God loves us all, but bad things happen to everybody. Good people, bad people alike. So when you read in the scriptures, in Noah's Ark story, God punished, had to destroy all the wicked of the world. Think in terms of, you know, I see it this way. There was a natural disaster. They interpreted it as God punishing everybody because so many people died. But that doesn't mean they were all that wicked. But God in his mercy and grace, does save Noah and his family. And one of the things we talked about, I believe, in an earlier lecture, um, this story spans not only, that's not a Bible story. That's a, that's a story that spans all religions, all cultures. Whatever happened that we know as the Noah's Ark story was a devastating flood that reverberated throughout all of history. And, um, and there, there are different tweaks to it from one culture to another, but it, it exists everywhere, which is one of the reasons we can look at the Noah's Ark story and say, it's probably not history in the sense that we use history, but something happened. Something happened that was huge. So it was a flood and it killed a, you know, a whole lot of people, killed most of humanity. But you've got to remember, for 50,000 years, all of humanity was just one family. How do I know that? We know that from geneticists, geneticists who tra trace uh, the genetics of the human family. And for 50,000 years, humanity 
was one single family living in one single location. So, you know, in that case, a flood to wipe out most of humanity is not unreasonable. All right, so that's the first key. There are different literary forms, and we need to ask ourselves that question. What is the context? What is the literary form? The second key is the Bible is all about Jesus. We tend to miss that. And I've heard so many people say, well, the Old Testament, there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. You ever heard that? The Old Testament God was, was this angry, mean, smiting God. And then Jesus comes and God is sweet and loving and kind. Well, you know, there's only one God. So in the Old Testament, God was sweet and loving and kind. It's just that people didn't understand that. People had their filters. People had their perceptions of God that, un that filtered the way they understood things. Second Vatican Council says this about Jesus. He is the completed and perfect revelation of God. Jesus is how we know who God is. And everything is about Jesus. Everything is pointing to him. So in the Old Testament, Jesus is revealed prophetically, and he's revealed by what we call type, T-Y-P-E. A type is a prophetic, is, is a person or an event that is itself prophetic of Jesus to come. It's a type. So kind of it's and that's it's a it's an odd word because it's this, it's a concept that really only applies to the scriptures. Let me use an example. We talked about Abraham and his son Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac, or you know, or the tempting of Abraham. Different Bibles classify it differently, but Abraham believes God wants him to kill his son Isaac. Remember this story, and so. Abraham gets some, some wood so he can do a burnt offering of, of, of his son Isaac. And he makes Isaac carry the wood for the fire, the sacrificial fire, up the Mount Moriah. Where is Mount Moriah? It's Jerusalem. Mount, we could, it's called Mount Zion in, later in the scriptures, but in Abraham's day it was called Moriah. The Jebusites owned it. And so... Isaac carries the wood up the mountain and is stretched out on the wood. Abraham is about to kill him. God stops him and says, don't kill your son. God himself will provide the sacrifice. And there's a ram whose head is caught in thorns. And then that is the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that God had chosen. This is a type of the crucifixion. Jesus who carried his cross up Mount Zion who was wearing the crown of thorns, who is the Lamb of God. This is an event in the Old Testament that is prophetic of an event in the life of Christ. It's called a type. And then the scriptures is full of them. Sometimes a type is an individual, like King David. King David, who was the king who unified all of Israel. Jesus comes, is often referred to as the son of David. David is the type of Jesus, the Messiah, who will unify all of mankind. So these kind of prophetic persons or events we refer to as types. And that is a great deal of what the, um, what the Old Testament is is its, part, its function is to point to Jesus, to give those who grew up in that Jewish culture in Palestine in the first century a, a way to understand who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lamb of God. He is the, he is the sacrifice chosen by God. He is all these things. Now, let's see. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. When God speaks light into the world that dispels the darkness, that light is Jesus. When Moses 
says that there will be another prophet who comes who will teach everybody what the law truly means. That prophet is Jesus. When Joshua, whose name means God saves, Jesus and Joshua have the same name, by the way. Joshua is a little closer to the Hebrew pronunciation. Jesus is a little closer to the Greek pronunciation, but it's the same name. When Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land, it is Jesus who is going to lead his people, in to lead the world into the promised land, which is heaven. You see, these types exist throughout the scripture, or throughout the Old Testament, but they're all to teach us who Jesus is because the entire Bible is about Jesus, not just the New Testament. Uh, St. Saint Melito Saint of Sardis writes this. He says, Jesus was led forth as the Passover lamb. He was slaughtered as the sacrificial sin offering. He ransomed us from the servitude to the world as he had ransomed Israel from the land of Egypt. He freed us from our slavery to the devil as he had freed Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. He sealed our souls with his own spirit and the members of our body with his own blood. See, he's going through these events in the Old Testament and saying, in all of these events, we are just seeing the revelation of who Jesus is, who Jesus is to be, so that when Jesus comes, they can recognize him. Key number three. Understand that all, understand all of the scriptures in the light of the life and teaching of Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of God. I say to look through, see the whole scriptures through the lens of who Jesus is. Because if the scriptures are to teach us of our relationship with God, the God that we are coming to relationship with is revealed in Jesus. Now, there's a There's a principle, now if you talk to any other Bible scholar but me, <laughs> they'll call it progressive revelation. They will say God revealed himself over time more fully to man. I disagree with that concept. I just kind of turn it upside down, really. It's progressive understanding. Because as I read the scriptures, God is always trying to reveal who he is to the people, but they're getting confused, they're confused, they're messing it up. Why are they messing it up? Because they come from a culture, they come with linguistic limitations, and especially when you're trying to understand God, communicate who God is, what God is like, you very quickly run into the limitations of language. Now, in English, there are currently about one million words in the English language. But in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there are only 8,000 vocabulary words. That's a very limited vocabulary to try to explain some very um, difficult concepts, like the nature of God. So anyway, I don't call it a progressive revelation, I call it a progressive understanding. God is always trying to reveal who he is, what he is like, and man is constantly trying to mess it up. So think of Moses and Joshua, who were great men, great men of God. But they come from a culture, from a historical context, in which life was hard. Life was terrible. And you mostly got ahead by killing other people. And so they come to the land of Canaan, there are people already there, and their understanding of what God wants is go in and kill all the Canaanites and then we'll take all their stuff. That's their understanding of what God wants for them. Is that what God wanted them to do? No. That's not a reflect. Jesus wouldn't have done that. And now the reason I know that that wasn't God's plan is because Jesus actually runs into a Canaanite. There's a Canaanite woman who wants her daughter healed. 
Now, if it was God's plan to kill all the Canaanites, what do you think God incarnate would have done? He'd have killed her. But that wasn't God's plan. He healed her daughter. God's plan was always a plan of love and mercy. But in a context of people who had been enslaved for 300 years, living under a military rule, their response to God giving them this land was kill them all. I don't think that was what God had in mind. But God loves us anyway, right? And God works with it. So there's a progressive understanding. And one of the things I read as I read the prophets is the, particularly in the prophets, we see God trying to communicate to the people a number of things that the, that the Jewish people just weren't grasping. How many times did the prophets say that they were to be a light to the nations, that they were supposed to you know, bring the word of God to the distant islands? That's a, um, a phrase we see often in the prophets. Go to the distant islands, bring the word of God to the distant islands. The law of God is for all the world. But it's a very, very slow transition between God being, the Jewish God being a tribal God, this is the God of our tribe, to a national God, the God of Israel, to the God of the whole earth. And it doesn't matter, and I mean, I read, you read, God says in one of the Psalms, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where would you build a house for me? But of course, the Jews built a temple and they were convinced and are convinced to this day that the God inhabited the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was his house. So that's where God lived. He lived in the very stones of the temple. That's why to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, all that's left of the temple is the retaining wall. Because to build the temple, they had to, they had to build up some earth to make a... Jerusalem's on a mountain, right? And to make a level, to get a large enough piece of level ground to put this big temple, they had to build a retaining wall, move some earth in, make a nice flat place. The temple was completely destroyed. There's nothing left of the temple. Well, I take that back. There's a piece of wall that's left of the temple that was just discovered a few years ago. But <laughs> the temple was completely destroyed. So they go to this retaining wall, sometimes called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, and they write their prayers and they roll them up and they stick them in little cracks in the wall because God lives in those rocks. To this day, that's what they believe. And I've done it too. <laughs> I've gone to the Western Wall. I wrote, my, I wrote this long list of everybody wanted to pray for, rolled up and stuck into the crack. You know, so, But that's what... But that's what they believe, that God inhabited those rocks, even though God continued to say, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. How can you build a house for me? So it's not that God is not revealing himself, but that man, because we are so sluggish, was very slow in understanding. And let's give them a break. Let's look at ourselves. Do we read the Gospels? And say, okay, Jesus, I get, I get it. I'm going to go out and do it right now. I'm, you know, no, we struggle with our own faith, don't we? We read the Gospels and struggle. Because we're growing. We're all on a journey. And that's why, you know, I hear people get upset when they hear someone say, oh, this, you know, someone says, I'm spiritual, not religious. And I hear people get upset. Well, that's a terrible thing to say. Well, it's not really. We're all on different places on the journey. You know, we're all somewhere along. Just because someone's not in the same spot I'm at, that doesn't make me better than they are. You know, so anybody that's in, in, in any sense trying to reach out to God at any level, I thank God that they're on the journey. I just pray they continue and they, they, they connect in a way that is truly meaningful and purposeful for them. They really discover 
God in their lives so that they can enjoy the peace and the freedom that God has for them. And I'm not trying to necessarily twist their arm into the Catholic Church because you've got, believe me, you know, I've, I've been everywhere. That's the Johnny Cash song. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere. <laughs> I grew up on Johnny Cash. But the coming into the Catholic faith, this is not an easy, this is not an easy journey. And so I let the Holy Spirit draw people into the Catholic faith. I'm not trying to force people to come into this because the Catholic faith is, it takes effort and takes patience. And it's just such a wonderful and rewarding experience. But you have to be called to it, have to be called to put yourself into this. You're almost, it's almost like Israel wrestling with God. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God and God changed his name to Israel. And it's kind of like it is when, it, when, you, when you come to faith and you have to wrestle with these things. Hopefully these four keys will help a little bit of that. Now that's not just true of the Old Testament. It's not just we have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the life and teaching ministry of Jesus. We have to read the New Testament that way too. There are a number of places in the New Testament that we have to you know, apply Jesus to that and say, hmm, St. Paul missed it there. St. Paul got it wrong. People hate it when I say that. But nonetheless, St. Paul was absolutely convinced that he was going to be alive when Jesus returned. He writes that in his letters, that I'll be alive when Jesus returned. Well, guess what? He wasn't. He was wrong. But we, tweak, we take that to the life and teaching ministry of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Says, no one knows the day or the hour. St. Paul couldn't have known that. But he believed it, and he, he wrote it, and, and that's okay. God bless you, St. Paul. Um, all, there's only one perfect revelation of God, and that's Jesus. It's not Moses. It's not St. Paul. So there was that one. Now, what else was I going to bring to? Let's skip that to later. Oh, women. St. Paul... I don't know if it's fair or not, because St. Paul never really wrote down a book to explain what he, you know, what he was trying to proclaim. We got letters. And as you know, you write a letter for a specific purpose. You write somebody a letter, you're not going to tell them your life story. You're not going to tell them everything. You, it, you know, it's, not, it's not a textbook. A letter is a letter. But anyway, some of the letters at St. Paul gets very strict about how women are supposed to handle themselves in church. And one of the things they're not allowed to teach they're not allowed to speak. And people have used that to denigrate women in the church. But we take that back to the life and teaching ministry of Jesus. How did Jesus treat women? He appointed them to be evangelists. The very first witness to the resurrection, the very first person that Jesus said, go and proclaim the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. It wasn't Peter, it wasn't John. And the very first person that he called to be an evangelist, go and preach the gospel, you know who that was? St. Photina. Actually, that's, that's her Greek name. We don't, we don't call her that in the, in the Roman church, but um, she was the woman at the well. The scripture doesn't give her a name. And so in some traditions of the church, they name her St. Photina, the carrier of the light. She is the first woman who, first person, who was appointed by Jesus to be an evangelist. So, we have to take even the writings of St. Paul and see them through the lens of the life and teaching ministry of Jesus. That's key number three. How am I doing on time? I'm running late. Okay, key number four. The Christian tradition does not end with the new, when the New Testament is closed. God didn't stop speaking to the church. God didn't stop revealing himself to us because we're still in the midst of a progressive understanding, right? We're still trying to grow in the understanding of God. 
We may understand, I hope we understand more than Moses and Joshua did, but you know, in the Middle Ages, they weren't too far from that. <laughs> they killed the church, killed a lot of people, and were, ha and were glad to do it. We are still growing in our understanding of God, and God is still trying to communicate himself to us. And so the scripture does not end. It continues in, as we talked about last week, in the apostolic fathers and the church fathers. And we mentioned a couple of them, but several of these men are named in the New Testament. Clement, Hermas, um, Ignatius. These are all individuals that we, we meet in the New Testament, yet they go on to become the Christian authors into the second century, teaching us about the church. Wouldn't it be great to have, a to have the first century catechism of the Catholic Church? We do. It's called the Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles, written in the first century. The catechism of the Catholic Church, written in the first century. So we have this early Christian testimony of God continuing to reveal himself, man continuing to grow in understanding. And that continues on through the, uh, through the church fathers, through the magisterium, and, and through the councils of the church. Whenever the church has to deal with a new issue, they get together, they pray, they allow the Holy Spirit to guide, and they continue to wade their way through these things. And they will still continue. We're not done. The church is not done in its understanding of God. And if you think it is done, this is always an interesting exercise. I love the catechism of the Catholic Church, but you know, the catechism of the Catholic Church is not an an infallible document. If you want to get a good picture of that, read the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the Catechism of the current Catechism of the Catholic Church side by side, and you'll see that in most parts they align up perfectly, but especially in parts that deal with family and culture, there are broad differences between the two because the church is still learning and growing to understand God. And sometimes people ask me, because I'm a married priest, will, will a church ever allow all priests to get married? And I have one simple answer. It's above my pay grade. I don't know. You know, that's up to the magisterium of the church to make that decision. But the fact that I am a married priest, that wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. The church is still growing in their understanding. And people ask me, will women become priests? Same answer. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> But we, I think we have a few steps to get to before we get there. I don't think we'll see women priests, but I do believe that we'll see more and more married priests in the church again, as in the first centuries of the church. Most, if not all, priests were married. So there are four keys that we need to apply to understand the Bible, and it's very simple. And the first is to understand the context and the literary form. We don't read the book of Psalms the same way we read the Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles is a historical book written by an eyewitness. You know, so that's probably one of the more books that we can say, yeah, this probably would really happened just the way it says it happened. This was written by an eyewitness. But in the book of Psalms, and people get confused about that because it talks about God sitting on a throne and God, you know, the stray having a strong right arm. And, and people, draw, I've seen people draw pictures of God based upon, you know, his, his description in places like the book of Psalms. It's a book, it's a song, right? It's full of poetic language. How else are you going to talk about God without using poetic language, especially if you only have 8,000 words in your vocabulary? Context and literary form. The Bible is all about Jesus. And if it drifts off into things that don't, you know, <laughs> if you read the story of how Ehud killed so-and-so, I forget, with a, sneaking up with him and stabbing with a dagger, and, ate, and the guy he killed was so fat that he lost the dagger, got swallowed up in his belly fat. This is in the Bible. <laughs> you know, I don't know, it's a story. Maybe you'll get some edification out of it. Maybe not. But it, 
the important things, the things to get edification out of is that it's all about Jesus. One of the things I like about the church is we have a lectionary. We have like kind of like a Reader's Digest version. I don't think the story of Ehud being stabbed with the, the guy losing his dad, I don't think that's in there. We have a Reader's Digest version. You can read through the lectionary and, you know, the daily readings and, and get a really good understanding of, of the scriptures and what the scripture is teaching us and, and miss some of the more gory parts. The Bible is all about Jesus. We must always understand the scripture in the lens of the life and teaching ministry of Jesus because he's the perfect revelation of God. And I don't care who it is, it's Moses or St. Paul, if they disagree with Jesus, Jesus is right. That's the way that works. And the word of God continues. The word of God continues. He is still speaking to his church and we are still growing in understanding. All right. Oh, Cheryl wanted me to point out that she was listening last week. She was watching on the live stream. She was very pleased with the questions that everybody asked, so that people took up. And so she's watching tonight. And so now we come to a point of questions. Who has a question? Yeah. I'm getting the microphone to you. Pardon? I said I'll start it off with, a, with an easy one. An easy one? Oh, okay. So, the Bible was written over a thousand years, I think you said. Mm -hmm. at, at what point and, and who or what group of people decided these are the texts that we need in the Bible? Don't send me any more. I don't want to read any more. We got to publish this to some degree. You know, maybe it's not a widespread publish it, but like, when did they finalize the Bible? That's a, that's a good question. Um, that was done in councils of the church. The Council of Nicaea dealt with uh, most of what we now consider the New Testament because up until that point, every, in, every bishop had his own collection of books that he considered to be the Jesus books, the New, the New Testament. And so the Council of Nicaea said, well, we need to get one group uh, of books together. And so they came up with a list of what they considered to be the... Um, the New Testament, but the Old Testament was not defined because they didn't think they didn't see any need to. Because by that time, the Old Testament was you know was really defined by the lectionary, what the church was reading in church every Sunday, and that is what we now have as the Catholic Bible. Those books that were used in the lectionary, being read to the church uh, on a regular basis from the early centuries. What happened, the reason why the Protestants and Catholics have different lists of books, um, by the time Martin Luther came along, some key elements of scholarship had been lost. What happened was in about 95 AD, still in the first century, because Christianity was growing so rapidly, there was a council of, um, of Pharisees, of Jewish rabbis, in, in Yemenia called the Council of Pharisees. And they limited the Old Testament to only those books that were written originally in Hebrew. Because after the conquest of Alexander the Great, books were written in Greek. And, um, and they did that to excise from their Old Testament books that were being used by Christians to talk about Jesus, to pro that were prophesied Jesus. Because the closer we got to Jesus, the more the, the prophecies and understandings of such things as eternal life, uh, the coming of the Messiah were, were, um, were talked about, were understood. So they, they took those books out of the Bible. Martin Luther came along and he saw that, you know, the Jews had a certain set of books and there's more books than what the church was using. And so he went with the Jewish um, canon of scriptures that had been determined in the uh, Council of Amenia by the, or the Council of Pharisees. 
So uh, that's how they wound up with fewer books than the Catholic Church had. But, then, but like I say, so, and because he did that, whenever there's a problem, the council has to make a decision. And so that's why the Council of Trent said, these are the books of the Old Testament, but they're the books that were always used in the lectionary and the readings. And they did not include all the books that were like commonly considered scripture in Jesus's day, which were uh, about 20 extra books. And when was the council of Nicaea? Like the year? 325. 325. 325. Now it's the Nicaea. One of the few dates I know. 1066, Battle of Hastings. 325, Council of Nicaea. <laughs> so, Thank you. long answer to a very good question. <laughs>